The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the Nasdaq quickly moving lower here, down about 1%. Uh, Taiwan Semi, though, managing to hold on, lifting the entire chip sector back to new heights at the open. Can you continue to bet on the winners, or is it time to dip in chips? And Snap Crackles, shares get another downgrade. We're going to tell you why those iOS changes may be to blame later. The CEO of Chegg, the stock was held back last year, but upgraded today. Why one firm thinks this name could graduate to record levels in 2022, D. Carl, we're going to start with the chips. Uh, Taiwan Semi shares, as you mentioned, getting a nice pop this morning after the iPhone supplier reported a record profit in Q4 and provided upbeat guidance. The move good enough for a new all-time high. Shares up more than 6%. And this comes as the chip sector continues to outperform software, a sharp divergence that started in late October. Check out this chart. Semis were one of the strongest trades of 2021. You see that divergence really take place around November. We are seeing a boost to other names in the sector as well. A very interesting setup heading into earnings season. Will semis continue to outperform? Will software surprise to the upside? John, there's bifurcations within bifurcations. Uh, what we hear from a lot of the chip CEOs across the board, though, and we've talked to several of them over the last few weeks, is that Demand is not going away. We're not talking so much about a mature smartphone market. We're talking about all of these new trends to pick up demand, whether that be high performance computing, autos, 5G and IoT. All the CEOs say that they don't see any sign of that easing. Yes, but I think what investors might need to uh, think about also be cautious about in these TSMC results. Yes, it shows that a big player is confident in the stability of demand overall for chips heading into the future. But within that, I don't think it's necessarily good for all chip makers. Just for example, look at Qualcomm, right? They're looking to expand their addressable market, which means they're eating into somebody else's. I, you know, I think about what the automakers have been saying lately based on their trouble securing chip supply, the problems that they've had. They're looking at Tesla going, maybe we need to standardize chips across vehicles. Maybe we need to design our own chips so we can be more flexible in these situations where, you know, uh, maybe we can't get supply of the standard issue stuff. We shouldn't have a thousand chips in a car, maybe just, you know, a, a few hundred that we very specifically pick. Carl, so I, I think as those shifts happen and the likes of Qualcomm and Marvell move into spaces where very specialized chip makers might have existed before, not everybody wins. So when you see a whole sector moving, maybe some names are moving higher that deserve to and some others not as much. Yeah, it's true, uh, John. And of course, when you think about the, just the sheer power and scale of TSM at this point, inevitably, uh, and this is sort of the bearish argument, it's going to make some governments uneasy around the world when we're relying so much on uh, one country and one country's player. Uh, that's going to be a discussion for another time. But at, at some point, you know, does that boil over into policy? Ah, maybe we have a bit of it now. Joining us now for more on TSMC and outlook for the sector uh, can be our investors' investment principal, Joseph Chin. Uh, good to have you. 
Joe, so when I look at these results, one of the things I see that might not be you know, popularly seen is that Pat Gelsinger's strategy at Intel is actually getting validated more and more when it comes to foundry and overall chip demand. Whether he can execute on that is a whole different question, but the, the idea that there's going to be stable demand for chips and possibly, well, likely demand for uh, foundry manufacturing outside of Asia, that seems to line up with what TSMC is saying, no? Uh, yes, and good morning. Thank you for having me. You ask a really interesting question, and I'll, I'll answer it on a couple different vectors. First of all, as it relates to TSMC, very strong quarter demonstrating continued accelerating share gains, pricing power, and importantly, a major increase in capital spending, which is indicative of strong demand visibility into the future. Uh, we're bullish on TSMC, and we believe that this quarter confirms our long-term view. More importantly, I think what's happening at TSMC is um, th that they represent the tip of the iceberg in terms of the many interesting and transformational things that are happening in the semiconductor sector. And you asked the question regarding Intel and, the, and their attempt to get into the foundry services uh, business overall. And it's indicative of an overall industry structure where manufacturing of leading edge semiconductors is frankly very difficult, more difficult than it has been in the past. And, it's, and the value extraction from this ecosystem is increasing as a function of the changing supply demand equation in the business. You also layer on a question around the strategic nature of foundry services. And this is a whole new element to the industry, which frankly, we could spend the entire segment on. But I think it's important to recognize that there, is, there are a number of companies in the manufacturing ecosystems that represent arm suppliers to this overall theme. So if you believe that reshoring is and the strategic nature of manufacturing is a long-term trend, there are many companies that will benefit from it. Yeah, ASML being one that I think about a lot. There's some risk there geopolitically, especially as uh, various governments try to lock out China uh, and, and ASML from dealing with them. But maybe talk about the equipment makers and some of those other arm suppliers uh, as a play within this environment of what TSMC is calling stable demand and the degree to which that's priced into those names now? Are there some names that perhaps are being underestimated? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, so uh, we did a podcast on this issue in December, which if, if your viewers would like the long version of it, it's available online. But in short, what we believe is happening in the semiconductor, semiconductor industry is nothing less than a multi-year, perhaps multi-decade super cycle akin to what happened to the energy sector in the late 90s to the mid-2010s. Against that backdrop, one of our favorite areas to be investing in is the manufacturing ecosystem because they represent uh, the businesses that are addressing the primary pain point of the industry, which is this issue of Moore's Law stress or increasing transistor scarcity. And due to the historic bias of cyclicality, these businesses have been some of the most deeply discounted um, uh, businesses in the sector. And to address one of your questions, do we believe there's still upside? Absolutely. Uh, this is an industry that we believe can grow through cycle, low double digits. And depending on the individual companies that you're talking about with the relative share opportunities, uh, we believe some companies can grow well in excess of that. And we don't believe the market is properly discounting that kind of long-term cash flow potential. Joe, the, the difficulty in finding anyone uh, who believes we're at risk of overcapacity, does that worry you at all, especially for those who've covered this business in multiple cycles for decades? It's a great question. And I mentioned earlier the, the, the inefficiency in this sector due to traditional cyclical concerns. I think it's important to point out that this industry was very cyclical in the past, just as energy during 
certain paradigms is extremely energy is extremely cyclical as well. The fundamental supply demand equation in the in the various sectors that we're talking about are going to dictate how cyclical these businesses are through cycle, how high the highs are, high, how, how high the lows are, and the amplitude of the cycles. We believe that the semiconductor industry and the manufacturing ecosystem in particular is fundamentally a better business today than it has been in the past. And so while it's very fair to talk about cyclicality, I think it's important to think about cash flow generation through cycle. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, these are businesses that, they can, that can generate mid-teens free cash flow growth through cycle in our view over the long term. Joe, you've talked about the manufacturing ecosystem, but on the design side, I wonder broadly if you think that we're going to see more tech companies bring that in-house like we have for the likes of Apple, Microsoft and Amazon. Do you think that in 2022 that moves down a level? You see smaller cap names sort of doing that or even other industries like auto? Uh, another great question and, and something, a topic deserving of its entire own, uh, it could, it, we could dedicate an entire segment to this issue. Uh, this is the, in the industry, we call this the rise of heterogene, heterogeneous computing. It's the rise, it's the idea that the, that the days of one size fits all off the shelf x86 as the de facto computing paradigm, those days are over. And in the new era uh, of, of cloud data, uh, of cloud, big data and AI, Heterogeneous compute architectures are the way that we're going to optimize for the increasing workloads. To answer your question directly, do I believe that that trend is slowing down? No, quite the opposite, actually. I think you're going to see more and more custom and semi-custom ASIC designs, and that's going to put even more impetus on the manufacturing ecosystem to keep up. Yep. Buckle up, investors. Uh, Joe, thank you. Thank you for having me. Meanwhile, a big test of the IPO market as we await the first trade of TPG. Our Leslie Pickers got more. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Carl. Out with the new, in with the old. Yeah, you heard that right. That's the sentiment surrounding the IPO market right now as the sell-off in growth has refocused investors on fundamentals. Case in point, today's deal calendar, 30-year-old private equity firm TPG set to make its debut shortly with a billion-dollar IPO. Founder and executive chairman Jim Coulter described to me their deal as a, quote, back-to-the-future IPO. What he meant by that is that the interest is stemming largely from traditional institutional investors versus the Robin, the Robin Hood crowd that we've seen kind of throughout 2021. Growth-oriented deals have seen more hurdles this week, however. JustWorks, a decade-old venture-backed software company, postponed its debut, initially scheduled for today. Recent IPOs in general have been on a losing streak for investors, uh, down 24% over the last year. That's the IPO ETF. Now, only one in five IPOs were actually profitable last year, but we saw a record amount of capital raised. IPO advisors tell me, though, that this year may look different with a focus more on some of the stodgier, cyclical, sponsor-backed exits, say, in the industrials and financial sectors. For its part, though, TPG's business model is private equity, but about 20% of its assets under management are in growth investing. If you recall, TPG was an early backer of Uber, Box, and Spotify, among other big exits for them. Guys. Yeah, many of those names, Leslie, that uh, we, we've covered their journey to public markets. This idea of it being a back-to-the-future <laughs> yep. IPO, so interesting, implying that perhaps this is more of a value play. That would also be such a stark contrast to what we've seen over the last few years, these high-growth tech companies that get big pops in the early days of trading. What does it mean for some of the names like Instacart and Stripe and Reddit that are also eyeing IPOs if TPG does well? And it sort of indicates that investors may be looking for more value. 
So if you talk to bankers about this, which I've been chatting with some and getting their, their thoughts on it, they'll say that good companies can go out in any market. Now, the question is, what constitutes a good company in this market? Of course, those names that you mentioned, we have yet to really see their financials and dig in to see whether they kind of count and constitute that quality, profitability, some of the more fundamental uh, drivers that investors are looking for in this market. That said, I don't expect us to see kind of the same level that we saw in 2021. Tech will always be a big part of the IPO market, but I don't know if it'll necessarily be the case that it pushes us over into new record territory in 2022, just because there's such a different dynamic in the market right now. And retail as well. You you brought up retail as kind of this next marginal buyer for so many deals in 2021 that were able to help kind of ensure that there was a successful debut, even when institutional was kind of tapped out. That may not be there this year, especially if you have more deals that are um, maybe older, less brand, brand name, less well-known to kind of the, the average person out there. All right, Leslie Picker, thank you. Now, still to come, Apple named a top pick. Goldman believes in love, plus the CEO of Chegg is with us. The Nasdaq, meanwhile, reversing early gains. You see it there down about a percent snap, leading it to the downside. Tech check. Just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I got check on Apple here. Shares are lower this morning after being named one of Bank of America's top picks for 2022. B of A bullish on Apple releasing a headset and charging more for, quote, immersive apps. Also looking ahead to the launch of a new iPhone SE this year, which a number of analysts are pointing to as a catalyst. Rating the stock a buy with a price target of $210. JPM and B of A now the highs on the street at 210, Carl. Uh, meanwhile, D, the metaverse has gotten a lot of investor focus, but even those stocks clearly are not safe from the market volatility. The Round Hill Ball Metaverse ETF down more than 13 percent in the last two months, although it did see big inflows in the last couple of months of 2021. Joining us this morning, the founder of that ETF, Matthew Ball, also former Amazon Studios head of strategy. Matthew, welcome back. Good to see you again. Good morning. I want to talk some fundamentals, but I, I just wonder how you're handling or thinking about sort of the, the macro risks regarding rates and the Fed and everything else. Um, how do you, how, at what point do you think fundamentals uh, make more of an assertion about the future? Look, I think most advocates and believers in the metaverse believe that this is a multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade transition. I'm not paying attention minute to minute, nor even month to month. Even if you were to have purchased at the peak of the dot-com crash, you'd be up 3x now. 20 years later. I don't think that's anyone's target return profile, but it just shows you what the perspective is when you take the right time horizon. Yeah, it is going to mean, though, that you're going to need to be nimble on names, individual names, doesn't it, if we're going to use that kind of dot-com analog? No, I actually disagree. We have a passive rules-based methodology. Our goal is not to pick Unity nor Matterport when it's particularly low, when the valuation compresses, 
we're picking names based on the expert council's belief in this multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade return. We are not tweaking based on who performs on a quarterly, quarterly basis, but instead who is positioned to benefit most over the long term. Hey, Matthew, it's Deirdre. Good morning to you. My question to you is, why is there so much metaverse pushback lately? It's not just my colleague, John Fort. We're hearing increasingly from CEOs and industry experts that there's so much overhype in this space. I'll note one, which is Phil Libin, the Evernote founder, called it a gloss that uncreative people and companies put over fundamentally a lack of good ideas. How do you respond to that and help our audience sort of separate the hype from the real opportunity here? I would position it in two ways. We've gone through two major transformations over the past 40 years, the rise of PC devices and the fixed line internet and the rise of mobile and cloud. In most instances, we understood what was coming before we had services available for them. In 2004, Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook. There was nothing preventing that creation in 1999 or earlier. It does take founders. But having gone through two different revolutions, the industry is now attuned to the fact that we need to prepare for what's next. In this instance, I would agree that preparations and hype has now preceded the innovation that will actually make it real. Right now, we can understand some of the names such as Unity or Matterport, Epic Games, Niantic, but it's absolutely right that we're talking about it more than we can experience it, and that is going to lead to some fair pushback. So, Matthew, why didn't AR, VR headsets take off before this point, for example, and why will they now? I mean, they've sort of gone the path of Google Glass where it's like initially the, the projection was they'd be in the consumer mainstream by now, but they, they sort of backed off into military and industrial use. It, it seems to me, I, I fear that part of this metaverse marketing gloss is going to sweep up ideas that haven't succeeded up to this point, along with some things that were already on a great trajectory and sort of fool investors into thinking, well, it's different now, when it might not be. Is that part different now? And if so, why? I would certainly agree that the term is being used to wrap together all nature of special projects and boondoggles in some instances. But to argue that things aren't different, technologically speaking, is flawed. It's much the same way that the Apple Newton device released 14 years before the iPhone. The iPhone, of course, has become the most successful product in history. When you take a look at the early rise of AR and VR devices, we can identify some really important differences. For example, we believe that to avoid nauseation with VR devices, we need roughly 120 frames per second and 8K resolution per eye. If you go back five years, we were roughly one quarter of the former and one eighth of the latter. We're now about 50% or 75% on both variables. We are now able to identify that by 23, 2024, we will have overcome that minimum viable product threshold. That was not true five years ago. It is going to be true now. And we can already see devices from Sony and others that will cross that barrier shortly. Finally, Matthew, I noticed your tweet about Zynga. Great day for Zynga shareholders, also known as a pre-AT&T day. Mm -hmm. um, I, wonder, I wonder how you're thinking about sort of the blurred lines between mobile gaming, uh, as we saw with this deal, and what we think the metaverse will eventually become? I think the important thing to recognize here is that we can see that mobile is the primary gateway for all virtual experiences. Much though we think of Call of Duty Warzone or Fortnite Battle Royale as the early indicators of multi-hundreds of millions of people participating in virtual worlds, we have billions doing so through mobile devices, through mobile IP, through mobile-only gaming and mobile-only gaming networks. A company like Take-Two makes 
tremendous games. Grand Theft Auto Online is one of the most successful titles in history. And yet it is fundamentally capped, and so too is Take-Two's. And we see in Zynga a company with a pretty deep bench of mobile games, IP, multiple different studios, and a burgeoning ad network that can actually support that vision. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see how that, that deal evolves and what opportunities arise from it. we got to stay in touch with you, Matthew, that's for sure. Uh, appreciate it. Good to see you again. Cheers. Matthew Ball. From Metaverse to EVs, as we had to break, check out shares of Tesla and Rivian. Mizuho naming both top picks for the year. Deutsche also likes Tesla. Bullish on Ford and GM as well. Plus, coming up, investors continue to put money into fintech. In the private markets, that is, a billion-dollar funding round for Checkout.com as they look to expand in the U.S. The CEO is next. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. After getting a higher open, the Nasdaq was in a, unable to hold gains. Uh, Peloton, Moderna, JD.com, some of the laggards, many of the chips continue to outperform. By the way, Dow is close to session highs, up 173. Julia is going to look into tech shifting hiring outside of Silicon Valley in a moment after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Falling gas and food prices helping keep wholesale inflation to a gain of just two-tenths of a percent in December. However, wholesale prices also jumped a record 9.7% for all of 2021. Jobless claims ticked up to 230,000 in the latest week's week. Claims have now risen four of the last five weeks, but they're still low by historical standards. Also, continuing claims dropped below 1.6 million. That's the lowest level since 1973. Shares of Delta are up around 3% after the company posted strong profits and its highest quarterly revenue since 2019. Delta expects that Omicron will drive it to a loss in the current quarter. But CEO Ed Bastian says that travel demand is on the rise. What we do see in the booking data is the President's Day weekend forward looks really robust. Uh, our numbers uh, and the bookings continue you know, through this period. People are ready to travel. They're ready to book their spring plans. Uh, they know Omicron's not going to be a threat to them at that point, and they want to get out and they want to reunite with friends, family, the world, get on with their with their life. Bastion says the Omicron variant, however, does remain a challenge. The worst of Omicron, it appears, may be behind us. Here's hoping. Deidre? Absolutely. Here's hoping. Rahel, thank you very much. Meanwhile, fintech is coming off a rocky year, falling behind the broader market. Take a look at some of the key players like PayPal and Block, formerly known as Square. Both are down double digits in 2021, 19 and 25 percent respectively. But still, that is not keeping bullish investors out of the sector. When it comes to the private market valuations, they continue to soar. Checkout.com announcing yesterday a $1 billion Series D funding round, placing that company at a new 
$40 billion valuation, making it the third largest private fintech company behind Stripe and Klarna. Checkout.com CEO Guillaume Pouzaz joins us now to discuss. Guillaume, it's great to have you on Tech Check. Thanks for joining us. Uh, given that setup, do you think that private markets are giving you not just a better price in terms of valuation, but better terms as well. You only had to hand out two and a half percent of the company's shares for that billion dollars. And does that sort of make you push out plans to go public? Hey, so first of all, thanks very much for having me. Um, I think, you know, the real question is, um, as a private company, um, our investors get to see all the numbers. So it's like, you know, very different from the public company uh, kind of setup. And the investors that have invested in the round at checkout this time are all kind of public investors for the most part. So if they wanted to, you know, invest in public comps with the liquidity that go, that go, um, I think what the, the reason investors have decided to invest in checkout is that we had an extraordinary year. We're gaining market share against both the incumbents and the new players. And I think this reflects in the valuation and the numbers we delivered last year. And if, any, any, if anything, we're super excited for the year that is coming because we have new products, more merchants than ever. I think you know our mm. press release was pretty clear that we service you know the world's biggest company. And so if the investors are coming in the cap table, it's probably as a reflection of our performance. That's a fair point uh, in terms of the crossover funds. Now, you said in the past when you talk about your differentiation that Checkout.com is different from players like Stripe and Adyen because you capture more of the enterprise market. But don't they, especially Stripe, eventually go after that market? And how will you keep ahead, especially if Stripe plans to go public? And that gives them more visibility with some of those enterprise players. So first of all, yes, we are absolutely 100% enterprise focused. I think this is in our DNA and since the beginning. And then I think competition is a good thing for the internet and for consumers in the first place. Uh, Stripe, us, and Adyen, uh, you know, just to name them as well, we are just a breed of new players, but we're competing against the incumbents. And most of the volumes today are still sitting with GP Morgan Chase, with B of A, with a lot of like incumbents that are sitting on all platforms. And if anything, you know, competition is good for us. I think, you know, with regards to us and our offering, there's three things that people choose checkout from price to quality and performance. I mean, we're really top tier there. Uh, velocity of new features, because we really focus only on enterprise. And I think this is where the focus goes is that we're not like, you know, Henry Ford selling only black cars. We really go deep with our customers. We build meaningful relationships. And finally, service. You know, if you have only 1,800 customers, you know all of them and you give them an extra mile service. And if you put all these things together, it has yielded great outcomes for checkout and we're going to keep going. Guillaume, given that, what's your approach to developer relations, to deep engagement with them? It seems that if your focus is enterprise, um, you know, having a better relationship, relatively speaking, than uh, some of your competitors with developers uh, in that class is going to be important. So what have you done? What do you plan to do to invest there? So absolutely, developers are now key. I mean, the buyer in our space has changed completely. If you look at like five, seven years ago, the buyer would be basically in the CFO tree. He would think only about pricing. And if you look today, who's the buyer of a payment solution? He sits in the product tree. He's talking about, you know, user experience, checkout conversions. And ultimately, it's all these decisions are led by product people, developers. And you have to cater to that audience. I think, you know, our docs are super clean. We have sandboxes. You can text every, test every single scenario. And Again, in the U.S., there's only a few payment methods, but as soon as you go out of the U.S., you're going to have like a lot of different payment methods to really secure in Europe, strong customer authentication. And being able to play with this in what we call a sandbox environment is a huge plus for developers. They can really try something before they buy, uh, and I think it makes a big difference. That's really interesting. So uh, I think it was 12 months ago 
you did uh, a raise at a $15 billion valuation, and here you are January of 22 at a $40 billion valuation. So that, that's quite a shift. Frame for me how different the story was 12 months later. Did it have to do with the trajectory changing that much, or is it more just a, a shift in you know, intensification of interest in the space overall? So I think there's a few things. First of all, I mean, yes, we delivered our numbers. We actually over-delivered the numbers. And if anything, the, you know, the um, investors who have invested this year have a better multiple than the investors who invested last year, because the closer you get to public markets and the more you kind of start correlating with public markets, I think this is, that's the first. The second thing is really in the numbers and the validation by the world's largest brands. From 2019, when we did our Series A to like, you know, last year, we tripled volume three years in a row. That's like 27X. We did more than 100 billion of e-commerce uh, last year. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll do several hundreds this year. And so fundamentally, you know, in a business like ours with enterprises where you have no churn unless, you know, you, you do a bad job, but we've proven to do a very good job over multiple years, you know, investors have the confidence that the business is going to continue to grow. I mean, we don't, we notoriously, you know, focus only on the digital economy, something that is really important to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you think about this, all our merchants are growing, we're growing, we're opening new geographies for them. We're gaining wallet share against the incumbents, and we have, you know, nearly a triple tailwind in our in our portfolio. So you have very strong metrics that support the growth, and I think, like you know, uh, uh, smart and savvy investors can understand and underwrite this and project future revenues with a fair amount of accuracy. Yeah, and you also uh, have some big customers in the crypto space, which Guillaume, we don't have time to get to today, but we hope you'll come on again soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Quick programming note as we go to break. Do not miss another edition of Crypto Night in America tonight. Our Sarah Eisen will sit down with MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor and FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried begins at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Meanwhile, Tech Check is back after this. A number of CEOs within tech have been disclosing just how much of their hiring has shifted geographically. Companies from Coinbase to Airbnb. As she kicks off the call for our 10th annual Disruptor 50 list, Julie is taking a look at the trend that fast-growing startups are increasingly driving. Julie, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I love D50 season. Oh, thank you, D. Yes, 10 years of D50 this year. Now, Deirdre, there is growing conversation among the CEOs of companies that have graduated from the Disruptor 50 list about the tech industry shifting away from Silicon Valley. Stripe CEO Patrick Collison tweeted that 74% of Stripe's hiring was outside the Bay Area in Seattle last quarter. That's up from 39% just two years ago. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky responded on Twitter, yep, the place to be was Silicon Valley. Feels like now the place to be is the internet, which is everywhere. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong adding to the conversation that 89% of Coinbase's hiring in Q4 of last year was outside Silicon Valley, up from 30% two years ago. Now, these CEOs are pinpointing a growing trend. For the first time in more than a decade, the proportion of seed and early stage capital invested in Bay Area startups this year is on pace to drop below 30 percent, down from more than 40 percent in 2014. That's according to PitchBook and Steve Case's Revolution, a firm that invests with the thesis that the next great startups are outside coastal tech hubs, what he calls the rise of the rest. 
Bay Area investors are increasingly looking elsewhere. Over the past decade, they've invested over $24 billion in seed and early stage companies in Los Angeles, nearly $6 billion in early stage companies in Seattle, over $4 billion in Austin, and $3 billion in the Washington, D.C. area. Now, we have seen this trend play out in the Disruptor 50 list. Last year, 29 of the 50 companies were outside of Silicon Valley, and it's a trend likely to continue on this year's list. The nomination process is underway. So to nominate your company, scan the QR code that you're seeing on the screen right now or go to cnbc.com slash disruptors for more information. Guys? Yeah, Julia, we've, we've seen more companies in recent years outside of Silicon Valley. We've also seen the rise of Chinese tech companies. That should prove interesting this year with the government's crackdown on tech companies there. But they've mostly been cracking down on the mega caps, the big guys. So I wonder if that could lead to perhaps more names, more startups in that country. Yes, perhaps some more startups in that country. But remember, of course, Disruptor 50 are only private companies. When you graduate, it means that you've gone public or you've sold. So it'll be really interesting, Georgia, to also see with the huge number of IPOs we had last year, how many new spots are now open? Because frequently we have companies on the list year over year. So now that a lot of those companies are no longer eligible for the list, I think that's a lot more room for startups and maybe more startups outside the Silicon Valley region. Julia, I wonder if companies have started to talk about worker satisfaction over the longer term uh, when workers are either remote or, or not gathered together geog geographically. Like It's one thing to have a lot of hiring outside of Silicon Valley, say, but eventually we're going to have to ask how much promotion is outside uh, of Silicon Valley uh, versus you know, somebody who you promoted then decided to move. Uh, I, I wonder if there's any talk about that yet. Well, we are hearing a lot about how hard it is to hire workers, John, and I think that plays into it. You need to make sure that you can get employees. I think that's one reason we're seeing so much more hiring across the country, because living in the Silicon Valley region, living near San Francisco or in San Francisco is still incredibly expensive. And so a lot of these companies are finding they could just reach a wider variety of potential employees if they cast a broader net from a geographic perspective. I am hearing a lot about morale and culture. How do you maintain a startup culture in a hybrid environment? Uh, and this idea of maybe bringing people into the office for regular get-togethers, so maybe you have people who are far-flung flying in for regular check-ins. But this is something that is going to be fascinating to measure, to see how it all plays out. Two years from now, John, I bet we'll have tons of data on how these different models work. I hope so. Julia, thank you. Now, as we head to break, we want to get a check on a few dating stocks. Goldman says they believe in love, upgrading Match and Bumble, adding the recent drop-off makes these names attractive. Haha. <laughs> from a valuation perspective, at least. Stay with us. Let's get a gut check on Snap today. Stock is falling fast this morning. Cowan does downgrade to market perform, cuts the price target from 75 down to 45. Uh, they see advertising headwinds due to those iOS changes as the biggest reason to bet against the social media company. They also expect revenue growth to decelerate in the first half and worried that the market valuation is too high. They cite their own ad buyer survey in the call. Nearly two-thirds of respondents expecting ad targeting challenges to remain for six months or more. Cowan, uh, as we said, lowers their price target on Twitter as well on those ad worries, and they boost Alphabet D. Interesting, uh, it all comes despite the fact that they see the overall uh, trend mm -hmm. in the ad tech very strong for 22. 
Yeah, and some of the big players in ad tech continue to be well positioned. But I thought what was interesting about this, John, it's all focused on the ad case for Snap. We've often talked about the AR, VR, dare I say it, metaverse case for the company that maybe it's an underappreciated play here. I mean, they have sort of this young active user base and they've been experimenting more in open than some of the big tech players in terms of AR and VR. Yeah, I, I just don't get sometimes how these analysts boost their price targets way up you know, in a market where there's a bit of a frenzy, right? Uh, and then, you know, when the stock doesn't get there, not necessarily because the fundamentals are falling apart uh, or, or there's some new information. We knew about the iOS changes. Then they, then they cut. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, okay. Coming up, Chegg looking Fair. to expand through M&A after a 70% stock drop over the past year. The CEO is with us next. Don't go away. Chegg shares have been quite on quite a trip, a huge rally in 2020, steep fall in 21, along with a lot of growth stocks. The online learning platform launching a new consolidated service, Learn with Chegg, this week and today closes uh, its nearly half a billion dollar acquisition of language learning company, Busu. Joining us now, Chegg co-chairman, president and CEO, Dan Rosenzweig. Uh, Dan, good to see you. Uh, I start us off on Learn with Chegg because you're bringing a bunch of the things that you do together. It's a bit of a different model and approach to your end customer. How does this change things? Well, first of all, thanks, John, and uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, it changes things a lot because what Chegg has been doing since the beginning is we're trying to build a giant platform to help people who need to learn things get unstuck, learn them, master the subject, and then perform better, whether it's academically or professionally now with skills or now with language with Busu. And so the ability to create a platform that personalizes each student's needs based on whether or not the student, what subjects the students are taking, what school they're in, what professors they have, where they are in the semester, how well they learn, whether they learn through video or through text, using machine learning, AI, and all of the data that we have of tens and tens and tens of millions of students over the years allows us to personalize the journey so that the student can now go from having to guess what to ask or try to understand what they need to know to us being able to present to them what they need to know now and what's likely to be coming next. So we're gonna be with them on the journey earlier, longer, and create more value for them. And we think this is the next logical step of education. We're, we're surprised that education itself hasn't really understood the value of personalized learning. They are starting to between uh, K through 12. But in higher education and in professional, people really need to zero in on what they need to learn. They need to be faster, more efficient, less expensive, on demand. Hmm. And that is what the Chegg new personalized learning platform does. Now, Chegg has gone from being uh, sort of a tool for renting other people's resources to a, a provider of digital tools for learning. And you seem to be moving into being a platform where learning takes place overall, moving deeper into actually being uh, sort of a classroom yourself. How deep are you going to go into that? Well, that's very astute uh, perception, John, because what, we, what we've come from understanding students better than anybody. Look, we reach more students on a global basis than anybody, particularly in the United States. We're growing uh, very significantly outside the United States. And what we know is that more and more students need more and more help. And so they, they are looking to affect their lives in a positive way 
by mastering a subject or learning it. And most students, if it's not for money that they quit, the other reason that they quit is because they get stuck and there's nobody there to help them. So we have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the all the information that they need to learn. We need to go back to the basics. Uh, we need to help them with job skills. Now we need to help them with language. It may surprise people to know that 40% of our students say they want or need to learn language in order to be successful in the next chapter of their lives, which means BUSU becomes a very uh, excellent acquisition where we can extend into the United States more rapidly than most people could through the personalization platform. So we are going to keep going deeper and deeper. You're right. We started out as a third party provider and invented textbook rental. We knew that print was not going to be around. So we, we started to build over the last 12 years a very large, popular platform for learning and mastering the subject. Hey, Dan, it's Carl. It's good to see you. Um, there's Carl. a piece in The Washington Post this morning about uh, enrollment trends in colleges, uh, losing half a million students this fall. And one of the experts says the longer this continues, uh, the more it starts to build its own momentum as a cultural shift and not just a short-term effect of the pandemic. They look at their friends who didn't go to college. They're, they seem to be making good money, as you point out. I mean, what is the risk that we don't get some of this back? Well, look, for, from the Czech perspective, our expansion outside the United States and our expansion outside of just academic support by going into skills and to language is all because we've understood that those demographic changes were going to happen anyway. And we think the market is much bigger. I mean, language itself is like a $17 billion market and has more people learning language than people going to college uh, in the United States. So we've always anticipated that was going to happen. But Carl, what we believe is happening is not that people aren't learning, they're just not going to the traditional places to learn because they recognize they're too expensive, they take too long. They're not designed for the modern student. The modern student is 25 years old, has a job, 26% of them have kids, need for the learning to be less expensive, on demand, come with more support. So Chegg's uh, platform expands beyond just the traditional marketplace into online learning, into skills-based learning, mm -hmm. into non-traditional pathways. I do believe there's a natural momentum that's going to hurt um, a lot of schools that really don't prepare people for the job marketplace. And that right. has been something we've been talking about for over 10 years. So Chegg is in a position to take advantage of the trend that's happening, but many people aren't. Dan, it's Deirdre. I have a question sort of around this wild uh, stock action you've seen over the last year. I wonder if you wish that you had done more perhaps when your stock was trading above 100 bucks. I know that you did raise capital in February of 2021, but do you wish you raised more or used your stock as currency to do more or bigger M&A, sort of like we saw Tesla and some of the meme stocks do at the height of their uh, stock journeys? Yeah, no, it's a fair question, but we have a philosophy, which is you never the road not you never know the road not taken. So you might as well just make the rage around successful. We're very happy. Look, we have over two billion dollars in cash still, even after we did a four hundred thirty four million dollar acquisition of a company that is growing faster than we are, by the way, and will extend our presence in Europe that we can bring to the U.S. And we were able to do that with money that we did raise at one hundred dollars a share. And so that made it very efficient to buy it. So we're very good stewards of capital. And we're also buying back $300 million worth of our own stock. And we still have $2 billion. So we're the best financially positioned company in the education space. So, I mean, we can't go back and revisit what might have happened. We certainly did not anticipate 
what happened in the fall to happen. Uh, that surprised everybody because uh, the pandemic expanded, but uh, expanded, extended, and beyond that, people were making so much money that, as Carl pointed out earlier, they chose to go make money rather than go back to school. Mm -hmm. Some of those things were unknowable. So we're very happy with the position we're in, and we're utilizing um, our cash position uh, as a leader should. Well, with what we see happening to the global economy and the labor market, ed tech, as you know, is a subject uh, near and dear to my heart. So hope to talk yes, to you again yes. soon. Dan Rosenzweig from Check. Anytime. Thank you, guys. Happy New Year. Thanks to Dan. Uh, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing this morning. Adam Aaron cashing in. AMC CEO selling $7 million worth of shares this week, bringing his total proceeds to $42 million since November. Tweets that he's done selling for now. Still owns to plan, uh, plans to vest, own or plans to vest in more than 2 million AMC shares, saying I'm in. Stock has seen a nearly 950% boost since the Wall Street bets frenzy began, but is down more than 40% since Aaron began unloading shares. As you know, 2021 was a record year for insider sales overall from the likes of Musk, Zuckerberg, and Bezos, John. Yeah, got to watch what they do, not just what they say. D. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we are seeing uh, a lot of chip stocks benefiting from that bump earlier. Uh, Lam Research up almost 6%. Yeah, and the NASDAQ underperforming once again, down about six-tenths of 1%, uh, Carl, as we head into earnings season. Yeah, tomorrow, City, JPM, Wells, and BlackRock. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.